Welcome to Celebration Church's podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and trust Him more. To learn more about Celebration Church, please visit us at celebrationchurchlive.com. We are in a series called Alternate Endings. I just want to draw your attention to the background here because my daughter did it. Someday we'll talk about her alternate ending, the thing that was supposed to end in death but did not. But she drew that for, uh, she made that for us for this series and we thought it would be apropos to have it this week when I'm preaching. But um, we're in this series called Alternate Endings. We're talking about the ways in which Jesus shows up in our lives when things are going to go this way and he says, no, 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 they're actually going to go this way. And he comes in and he changes the direction of our life. And we get this straight from the Bible that the resurrection is the greatest alternate ending ever. Amen? And it reminds us that God is still altering endings. He still does it. He still steps in. And one of the worst things we can do as a church is get to a place where we see the story of Jesus, right? And the resurrection and the crucifixion. And we sort of go, yeah, okay, I know that. No, you don't. We can never get to a place where we're not shocked by, the, by just the sheer scandal of this whole thing. We talk about this all the time. Are you serious? You, you understand it? No, you don't. It's the greatest alternate ending ever. And within like the banner of that alternate ending, we get all these other stories that fit inside there. And we go, yeah, but this is still the one. This is still the one that took human history and said, yeah, you thought you were going here, but no, 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 I got scratched that out. You were going this way. Yeah. And 1 Peter 1.3 says this, and this is the, the verse that we have kind of looked at this whole series. And it says, praise be to God. To the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And again, if that ever gets to a place where that's no longer awesome to you, you need to go back and look at it again. Amen? It's just so amazing. So we are, we're going to look at this this week, and uh, we're going to be spending some time in, in Luke's gospel, the 15th chapter. So if you've got a Bible, you kind of want to bookmark that there. Uh, we'll go to some other places, but we're going to kind of camp out in Luke 15. And we're going to talk about the prodigal son. Because as some of you know, I might have mentioned this once or twice or a hundred times. It's still my favorite story in the whole Bible. I mean, okay, it goes Jesus and then prodigal son. All right? But the way in which the prodigal son talks to us about the father and tells us the story of Jesus and our redemption, I just, there's, no be- there's no more beautiful picture than that for me. But I want to do something before we dive into the meat of this, and I want to talk a second just about parables in general and what we have to do when we think about parables. All right? Everybody with me so far? Say yes if you're with me. All right, I got like, all right, so far. I know it's early. We'll get there. If if, uh, that last song didn't wake you up, I don't know what it would take, but parables are beautiful. And here's the beautiful thing about parables for me. They are intentionally sort of devoid of detail. Does that make sense? I mean, we're telling a pretty broad story. And when we go through this in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son story, you're going to see this is not a novel Jesus is writing. He's not giving us every little piece of dialogue, every little bit of backstory. There's a whole lot of things that he kind of assumes that people will know. Why? Because he's talking to them in their culture, in their time. And we have to really take the audience the intended audience into account when we talk about parables because otherwise we'll gloss over things that they would have went, what? And we'll go, I don't understand. I guess that's interesting. But we'll miss the significance of some of this stuff. The other thing that is really cool, and as I was thinking about this for the last couple of weeks, and as I prayed about it and I thought about what I would, how I would explore this story, 
I was reminded to go back to the beginning. Anybody ever have that before? God's just like, go back to the beginning. All right, so if you're ever stuck, by the way, go back to the beginning. And so I went to the beginning of the chapter of Luke, Luke 15, and I read this. And it's not going to be on your screen, so just, but it's this. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. They're coming near to listen to Jesus. I want to hear that. The tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to Jesus, right? And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. I want you to hear this now. The intended audience, at least in my opinion, yeah, the sinners and tax collectors who are drawn to Jesus, right? But what about those Pharisees and scribes who stand out in the crowd a little bit farther out, out of, and listen and critique and find, while they're doing is waiting for him to say something that at some point they could hold against him. That's all they're doing. And they're grumbling. Look at him. He's, he's talking with these tax collectors and these sinners, and they hold themselves up as upright, holy people, and they're already just, they're just scheming in their minds about how can we trip him. Does that make sense to everybody? So I want you to see that Jesus is not just talking to the people right in front of him. He's talking to them, but man, there's like an unintended or sort of un, like unexpected audience out there. It's kind of like when you talk to your wife about your kids, but you know they can hear you, right? Like that kid of yours, you know, and all of a sudden they're like, they're outside going, man, we in trouble. And the difference is, is that the sinners and tax collectors will see themselves in this story and go, this is awesome. And the scribes and the Pharisees will see themselves in this story and go, how dare he? Who does he think he is? Because they're not who they think they are, and he's not who he think they think he is. Amen? So we're going to jump right into this thing. It's amazing to me that, that we get so much out of a handful of verses that Jesus is able to weave this story with so much complexity. Meanwhile, it's so very simple and straightforward. So we're going to jump right in. There's a hundred different ways we can attack this story. For our purposes of talking about alternate endings, I'm really going to sort of lean in on the, on the younger son. I'm really going to kind of lean in on that prodigal, although we all know, I think, that there's an older brother who's every bit as messed up and lost as the younger one, amen? And if you really want to make the cool parallel, the older brother and the scribes and the Pharisees really have a lot in common. They're the ones standing outside the party going, how dare he? Who does he think he is? But the younger brother's really where I want to talk, where I want to spend some time today. And I want to start by telling you this, with the story that we get with this guy is that Number one, bad decisions begin with wrong perceptions. All of our bad decisions have their root in something in our mind that we just have wrong. We're just not getting it. Amen? Let's look at uh, Genesis 3 because we don't have to go very far. We go all the way back to the beginning of our story and we get the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And Adam and Eve have been told by God, simply don't eat that one. Right? You have the whole garden. Do whatever you want. There's that tree in the center. Just don't touch that one. Don't, actually, he didn't even say don't touch it. He said don't eat it, right? And we have this immediate in, uh, interaction in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7, where they make this decision. So now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat it, eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delightful to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And so we see this, this, this lie of the enemy come in in the very beginning, and it begins to alter the perceptions of our forefather and mother. Amen? All of a sudden, this God that they had walked with in the cool of the garden, in the cool of the day, all of a sudden, this God where they'd had communion with, who'd given them everything, who'd given them dominion over everything, who charged them with all of this stuff in the garden, given them purposeful work to do, right? Had only withheld this one thing from them. All of a sudden, this God is painted as not just stingy, but withholding. Oh, he just doesn't want you to have it because he's worried that you'll rival him. How in the world did they think they were ever going to rival God? Really? If that's the God who they're worried about, then he's not much of a God. And so the lie begins to seep in, and all of a sudden we have this decision predicated upon a bad perception. All of a sudden this God that we thought we knew, we now think is withholding. We now think is stingy. Now we think he's arbitrary, and he's just setting up these rules for no reason. How many of you guys have been teenagers in this room? That should be most of y'all. Don't lie to me. We're like, you went from five, six, seven to like 40. No, you didn't. How many of us thought at one point that our parents were just mean? How dare you? You set up these stupid rules for me. You just don't want me to have any fun and blah, 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 blah. And all the while, we don't have the big picture. We don't understand. Now, mind you, some of y'all parents might have been like that. I don't know. Some, some, somebody's parents might have just been cruel and mean, but... Mine had my best interest in mind. And I'll tell you a little story about myself. At the age of, say, like 12 or 13, and I don't like to admit this, so don't tell my mama. If you're watching, mama says, I'm just making this up. But I was a little thief. I was going to try to find a nice way to say it, but I was just a little thief. And I don't know why. I was raised better than that. My mom and dad would have thumped me if they knew. But I just developed this habit. And there was this, there was this perception in my brain some sense of entitlement, some sense of, well, the risk is worth the reward, some sense of whatever. And all of my bad decisions were rooted in the idea that, number one, I didn't think I was really hurting anybody. Wrong. Number two, I didn't really think it was that big a deal. Wrong. Number three, I felt like I was entitled to take from somebody who had more than, does that make sense to everybody? It's stupid and it's wrong. I get it. But I promise you there's people in this room who were like, yeah, it was me too. All right? So I'm not going to tell you any more. I'll tell you, I'll tell you that it got worse. Ah, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud. This is my parable. There once was a man who had two sons. One of them was me, and one of them ripped off his youth pastor out of his own home. Stole his wallet right off his dresser, and then lied it out with money. Actually, I wasn't even smart enough to just take the money. I took his whole wallet. So I took the wallet, and I did the, but it was, again, it was, uh, he, he, had, he had wronged me. I was mad at him. You know, I, there was all kinds of reasons in my mind, and I rationalized this in my brain, and I just was in their house one night having service. You know, we, they, we met at their house periodically, and, you know, me and my buddy just walked into his room, and next thing you know, we got a wallet full of cash, and we out. Once was a man who had two sons. One son wouldn't have done that, and the other one had no problem doing that. Rooted in a perception that was erroneous, that was wrong, that was misguided and hurtful. Amen. Let's look at, our, our, at our, our, the, the hero of our story in Luke chapter 15. Now, mind you, Jesus is told this is the third of three stories that Jesus tells about things that are lost. And I think that's amazing because think about this for a second. The whole nation of Israel is lost. And he's telling, he's letting them know I'm going after not just you guys. I'm going after everybody. I'm going to leave the 99 like we just sang, right? 
I'm leaving. I'm, I'm, an, I'm the guy who goes and looks for the lost coin. I'm the shepherd who leaves 99 to go find the one lost sheep. And I'm the father in this story who had two sons. Look at this, Luke 15, chapter, uh, chapter 15, starting in verse 11, says, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger said to the father, Father, give me the share of the property that will be mong- belong to me. And so he divided his property between them. First of all, what kind of father? He says yes to this request. I think it's pretty remarkable, number one, that the father did this. It says something about what the son thought about dad that he would even make this request. Because think about this, culturally, what we understand is that when, when, when the father died, the money would have been divided amongst the two kids. The, the older would have got a double portion. We talked about that last week, right? About how the older would have got a little bit more than the younger. Maybe the younger was concerned he was going to go out from being under dad's thumb to going out from being under brother's thumb. And he would never be, I don't know, there's, the Bible doesn't give us a bunch of reasons. Jesus doesn't flesh this out for us. Why? So we can find ourselves in this story. If we put too much detail in it, we leave ourselves out. We go, well, that's not me. And it's broad enough that we can go, okay, I, I can see myself in that. I, I, see how that I, I see how that applies to me. And Jesus takes away any excuse that it doesn't apply to us. And he says, man, let me have what's mine. Basically, the translation of that is, dear dad, you're not dying fast enough for me. Why don't you just drop dead now? Give me my money. Understanding that in this culture, once that transaction takes place, they're done. And also understanding that this would have been a public humiliation for dad. This would have been scandalous on a scandalous scale for a wealthy man's son to do this to him. And everybody would have known. Does that make sense to everybody? I can't even honestly come up with a parallel except that I ripped off my youth pastor. And then my poor father had to deal with the, out, with the fallout from that. Broke his heart. I can't, it's, and it's not even close. I never told my dad drop dead. I just acted like it was okay for me to do what I wanted to. But that's the closest I can come. If I was telling that story to a room full of church people like I just did, and I say the words, I ripped off my youth pastor, there's a collective, <gasps> right? This would have been the same collective, oh, my Lord, that they heard when he said that the younger said, give me my money. There would have been a whole lot of, oh, no, he didn't in there. Oh, I would have drop kicked that kid, right? You'd have had all that murmuring going on. And the Pharisees and the scribes outside would have been like, we know what we'd have done to him. But the second thing we have to talk about, about bad decisions, is that bad decisions usually very often lead to more bad decisions, right? Don't they just kind of build on each other? You tell the lie, and you got to tell the lie to cover up the lie and the lie, and then it just goes on, right? The, the hole keeps getting deeper and deeper. So we have in, uh, in Genesis 3.12 that it wasn't enough for Adam and Eve to break the rules. Genesis 3.12 says the man said, and this is after God said, hey, um, what's up? Like, what are y'all doing, right? And the man says, the woman whom you gave me, right? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. Here's what I want to tell you. You can't see this, but I wrote it down in like bold red stuff. So I wouldn't forget to say this part. In the history of bad decisions, it goes, eat the apple, blame the woman. (laughs) Are you kidding me? We've been paying the price for this ever since. And actually, by implication, blame God. The first one's kind of funny. The second one, not. The woman, by the way, God, that you gave me, this is your fault. 
This is at your feet. The woman you gave me, she's supposed to help me. She did this to me. No, Adam, you're a knucklehead. You were led by your eyes, by your heart, by whatever you, what, you were led some other way. But it goes, eat the apple, shift the blame. Anybody who's been married for any more than five minutes knows this is a bad idea, right? We do, even if it's her fault, you shut your mouth and you move on, sir. Thank you. And I, I got the, you're like, what? But look what happens to our, our intrepid young prodigal, right? It's not bad enough. He says, dear daddy, give me all the money. I got to have the money. What does he do with the money? Because it'd be one thing if he took the money and he like rolled, drove down the street, built himself his own little farm or whatever, and started his own business and decided, I'm just going to be on my own. It's still bad enough he did what he did, but he doesn't do that. He compounds the problem. Luke 15, 13 says, a few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. That's a great Bible word, isn't it? Dissolute. Sounds almost... Almost what? Almost classic. Yes. I spent it on dissolute living. It was quite a ride. Oh, he blew it on all kinds of junk. And I don't even want to talk about it because who knows? It's open and broad enough that we don't know exactly what he did, right? But he took all this family fortune and he went and had himself a time. He had himself a little bit of a party. He got a lot of friends who probably talked into his ear and told him that he was totally justified and right in what he did, right? And then handed out, you know, opened up their hands for a little bit of that money. When I ripped off my youth pastor, <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I gotta I got to find a better way to, when I had my own bout of dissolute living, <laughs> I, uh, this is the 13-year-old brain at work, people. My friend and I, I walked out the bedroom and I had this fat wallet in my hand. Mind you, there was $60 in the wallet to a 13-year-old. It was a youth, and they were a volunteer youth pastors. It just gets worse. They were the nicest people. Oh, my Lord. 60 bucks in this poor dude's wallet. Worked his tail off all day in construction, and this knucklehead 13 ripped him off. What did we do with the money? We ran to the video arcade. Those don't even exist anymore, but me and my best friend, we cut class the next day. We spent 60 bucks on, like, Burger King and video games. It was the dumbest waste of money, but we knew we couldn't be caught with any of the actual money. It needed to be spent. The bad decision on top of the bad decision. And then when, when, when you know, youth pastor's wife comes and knocking on the door, and I lied through my teeth. I have never lied so convincingly in all my life. It was, it was like Oscar-worthy, this lie. I can't believe you would accuse me. I was just, I was, I was offended. I was hurt. I was like, accuse me? What are you thinking? My dad threw the one out the house. He's like, you and your husband need to get your stuff and get out. My son would never. And he stood up for me like, like a dad would stand up for his really bad son. Um, but he threw her out of the house. We, were gonna, we weren't going to talk to these people anymore. They were the worst of the worst. No more. But this young guy, this prodigal, goes on, and he just blows all dad's money. The bad decision on top of the bad decision on top of the bad decision, which leads eventually to a crisis, doesn't it? Because the third thing we got to look at is this. Sometimes it takes a crisis to see the results of our bad decisions. In the midst of those bad decisions, most of us don't see what's happening. I've talked to enough people in recovery. I've talked to enough people going through you know, hard times and relationships and family stuff. I've talked to enough people who are just, just deluded in their own minds that they're right and everything. And they don't have any clue about what they're doing. They really don't. Something has to happen, doesn't it? 
And we always heard this, like you got to hit rock bottom. Everybody's rock bottom is something different. But everybody's got to come to a place where there's a crisis moment and a decision has to be made. My crisis moment came when my best friend told me to blame everything on him. This was a kid who grew up with, you know, a drug addict mom, absentee father. He never even knew who his father was. An endless parade of guys who rolled in and out of his house, and he called uncle, right? He was, he was the oldest of three kids, one who had special needs, and he was tasked with pretty much taking care of the family because his mom was useless, usually doped up or gone. And this was a guy who came to me. Hmm. Can't even hardly think about this without just... Anyway, and said, man, they all think I'm scum anyway. Just tell them I did it. I'll cover for you. Everything will be fine. My crisis moment at least showed me I wasn't that far gone. At least it was like, no, I would do a lot of things, but I'm not doing that. So I had to come clean. I had to go, I had to go, to, <laughs> I had to, go to mom and dad. Oh, my Lord. How many of y'all have, stand, have stood in front of parents? <laughs> I'm laughing, but I'm about to ball my head off. And had to admit that everything they thought about you was wrong. That they went to bat for you. That they were angry for you. That they were ready to take people out at the knees for you. And you have to go, yeah, well, actually, that thing I swore to God I didn't do. The thing I swore on, my, on your lives I didn't do. I did. And to watch that look on my dad's face of just betrayal and just heartbreak was Never before or since. But here's, I want you guys to look at this. We'll make some parallels. In the book of Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles, we see that, that Israel has the habit of being this prodigal, don't they? If, if you know anything about your Bible history, you know that, that, that Israel has this issue where they come to a crisis and they scream and cry out to God. And then it's not too long after that they, they have a crisis again. So it... Look at this, 1 Chronicles 9 verse 1 says, The names of all Israel were written down by families. See, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was carried away to Babylon because they were not faithful. Another exile, another slavery, another incidence where there's a crisis. Because why? Because they weren't faithful. And here's the problem with all of this stuff that we talk about where the crisis moment comes and suddenly we're ready to make amends. Suddenly we're ready to do things right. The problem with living out of that whole deal is this. When the crisis passes, right? When we're in the foxhole and we're making deals with God. And all of a sudden we're home again. And that moment passes. We're like, okay, well, whew, yeah, that was, that was something else. I'll just... And next thing you know, we've moved on. I'd like to tell you that my crisis moment had like an everlasting effect on me, but I tell you it did not. I mean, it, I, I curbed my behavior for a while, you know. I don't think I ever really went back to thieving, as it were, but, but I, I, it would take a few more crises before uh, I would really get it, you know. And when the feeling had passed and when the moment of, of disappointment had kind of faded and the pain of the, you know, 50,000-year um, grounding that my dad tried to put on me was over. Yeah, we kind of moved on with life. And the urgency of that moment didn't really stick around. Luke chapter 15 and 14, 16, we catch up with our prodigal again. And I want you to see this because this is, this is my story, right? When he'd spent everything, a severe 
famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. Need very often drives us, doesn't it? All of a sudden, there's a problem. Why? Because you're hungry. You're cold. You don't have a home. So the need, he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself to one of the citizens of the country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs, which, by the way, as my friend Don likes to say, is no good place for a nice Jewish boy. Out there feeding pigs? Wow, that's terrible. Jesus is intentionally trying to get your attention. I want you to hear this. The idea that he's in a place feeding pigs is not an accidental detail. To the Jewish people and the scribes and the Pharisees, that might have been as shocking as anything else. Why would a good Jewish boy be hanging out with some unclean animal? That's the best he could do. And he couldn't even eat the slop that the pigs were being fed. That, my friends, is need. You've cut yourself off from everybody. You've cut yourself off from your own God at that point, right? You've turned your back on your religion. You've turned your back on your family. You are literally alone. And then you go, oh, yeah, <laughs> you have this moment. Because here's the truth of it. Good decisions begin with repentance. But we want to talk about this word for a minute because the next thing it is, I want you to write in there, is a change of mind. Here's, here's my problem with religion. And if any of you know me very much, we've talked about religion. I talk about religion a lot, you know. And, and my problem with religion man-made religion, anyway, is that we tend to sort of hijack words, assign meaning to them, and then the next thing you know over time, that's what this word means. And so for a lot of us, we hear the word repentance, and that really just means remorse. You need to just be sorry. Can I tell you, it doesn't always work like that. I was lots of sorry. I have been all kinds of sorry. I have met people in the depths of their addictions, in the depths of their sin. I've met them in the places where they're about to break in half, and they're seriously sorry. And nothing really changes, right? And I've seen people who totally change their lives around, and they, they suddenly behave correctly, but their hearts are a wreck, and they're a mess on the inside because all their energy is just put up trying to make this front to let everyone know that they're okay, Man, it's just as harmful, right? We're not interested in behavior modification. I'm not interested in you just finding a set of rules that you can follow. Jesus isn't interested in that. Otherwise, the Pharisees would have never got a crossword from Jesus because their behavior was great. They were upright. They paid their tithes, right? They obeyed all the laws. They celebrated all the feasts. They did the things they were supposed to do. And Jesus called them whitewashed tombs and you're dead on the inside, because their hearts and their minds still thought of God in a wrong way. So the repentance comes in when we begin to shift our minds. And we see the Bible tells us that we were enemies of God. Where? In our mind. We were never actually enemies of God, but we thought of ourselves that way. We shift and we see a God who's not out to get us. We shift and we see a God who's not trying to hurt us and withhold from us. We see a God who's trying to get something to us, who's trying to build us up, connect us to a family give us purpose, give us life. And all of a sudden, all the other stuff, guess what happens? It takes care of itself. And I don't have to beat my head against the wall. And I don't have to show everybody how good I am. I simply have to live in connection with Jesus Christ. I simply have to know that my Father loves me. 
And I promise you one thing. You don't break the heart of the people that you love and that you know love you back. It's just this, it's this amazing thing that happens. But unless and until we see God that way, we are simply sometimes just trying to keep up our appearances. Simply just trying to make sure people around us don't know how messed up we are on the inside. <sighs> Can I tell you guys this morning, the mask ain't worth it. It needs to come off. You need to get honest with somebody. Get honest with God. Get honest with yourself. Where did, where did the prodigal son repent? Was it when he came home and told daddy, I'm sorry? Or was it when he had a come to Jesus moment in the pig pen and he's like, man, what am I doing? Look at this. This is awesome. Luke 15, 17 says this. When he came to himself. Now, the, the Greek word for repentance, by the way, I didn't mention this, is metanoia. It literally means to change your mind. So here we have this prodigal son who spent the last, we don't know how long, messing around, being a bad guy, and he came to himself. And here's what he said. How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, but I'm dying of hunger? Now, mind you, whatever he thought about dad before, he never thought dad didn't have bread, right? And was never laboring under the impression that, that, that dad didn't have enough. What he probably thought was dad was not going to give him what he needed. And all of a sudden, his change of mind comes in when he says, you know what? My dad's not a bad guy. My dad's actually a pretty good guy. Matter of fact, he treats his servants better than, than these people treat anybody else. The servants in my dad's house are living a hundred times better than I'm living. That's what that is, people. It's repentance. What? It's not the story he concocts for himself to go tell dad I'm sorry. It's the notion and the moment where he comes into the idea where God, his father, will not withhold from him. Where God, his daddy, is not looking to beat him upside the head. Like, he could go home, right? His dad is that good. If he still thinks dad's a bad guy, man, I don't care how bad things get. He's not going home. He might be going home to a public stoning. He might be going home to all kinds of stuff. Who knows? But all of a sudden, guess what? He knows that his dad is not like that. And that, my friends, is what drives us. The Bible tells us that it's, that it's the goodness and the kindness of God that leads us to repentance why? Because when we see the goodness and, and kindness of God, we change our minds about him. And we go, oh, he's not like I thought he was. Of course I can trust him with this. He's good. Amen? Amen. This is amazing to me. A um, couple things I got to roll through real fast. Uh, very often, though, here's what happens. We try to design our own alternate endings. And here's what the prodigal did in this story. Is he says in Luke 15, 18, it says, I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against you and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. And so the repentance moment is I can go home again. It leads to this place of saying, I really got to go make things right with my dad. We cannot get those two things backwards, right? If the prodigal son simply thinks I need to say the right thing so that dad will love me, that he still thinks wrongly about his dad, right? That he can be manipulated, that he's whatever. That if he just says the right thing, that dad's going to do the right. No, if we change our mind and we understand that God is good, guess what happens? We start to get our, our thinking in line with what he says. And all of a sudden, he's like, man, I really did mess up here. I got to go tell dad that I've sinned against him. And, I've sinned. and we know that sometimes that's where we get. You know what? Here's the deal. 
his father was better than he even imagined. Like, he's like, my dad's like that good. The truth was, God was, his dad was like that good, right? But he at least got his head around the idea that the dad was better than he thought, and he concocts a plan. I'll just go and I'll say, hey, I would rather be a servant in your house than be out here feeding pigs. And we sometimes we do this in our own lives. We try to create our own endings. But the truth of the matter is, and this is where we're going to land, is that God's plans are always better than our plans. They're always better. No matter how we've messed things up, when we come to him, his solution is always way better than our solution. And so if we try to concoct something on our own, we try to go, well, I'll do this, and then I'll do this, and then I'll do this, and then God will come along and do this. Man, what what are we short-circuiting the plans of God for? What we need to do is come to God with all of our mess and all of our brokenness. We need to come to him with all the shattered pieces of it all. Sit it down and go, hey, it's, it's, it's not much, but I, I don't know how to fix this, and only you do. And when we're honest with God, when we're honest with ourselves, man, the results of that are we, we trust him with the results. We let him do what he does, and all of a sudden, the results of that are, man, they're way better than something we could build on our own. Amen? It's a beautiful thing. Luke 15, verses 20 through 24, we'll close with this verse, or a couple of verses. So he set off, and he went to his father. But while he was still far off, ooh, it still gets me. He's still far off at dad season. His father saw him and was filled with compassion, and he ran and put his arms around him, and he kissed him. And then the son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Then his wildest dreams, the prodigal son never saw this unfold, right? Because the best he could come up with in his own creativity was, I'll at least get to live indoors. I'll at least get to have you know, some decent food. I don't have to touch those nasty pigs anymore. I at least get to come in out of the cold. And so that, he was, man, he was happy to do that. To be greeted and cut off mid-confession, mid-apology, and be embraced as a son, brought back into the house. And all of the symbolism that comes along with the robe and the sandals and the ring on his finger, all this stuff, he's fully and 100% restored as a son. In his, in his wildest dreams, he never saw that taking place. And so this is my admonition to you this morning. It's my encouragement to you today that one good decision can undo a lifetime of bad ones. Amen? That there's something in your life that you have just held on to and you've thought to yourself, if I just work on this a little bit, I could bring that to God and then he could fix it. Right? Can I tell you this morning that there's no amount of fixing that you can do to it, that's ever going to make it what Jesus could make it if you would just cooperate with him. There's nothing you can do that's going to make you more acceptable to him. He loves you like you are, and he loves the broken pieces too. And he loves everything, and he wants you to bring it. And he, man, let him do what he does. You don't go to the artist and say, hey, let me paint this for you, show you how this works. That's my daughter. She's an artist. She hates that. Give her an idea and let her run with it. Guess what? We come to God, the artisan, the craftsman, and we say, this is the, this is the material you, you have to work with. God, you made it, so we know what's good, but I've messed it all up. I need you to fix it. Amen? Thanks for listening to this week's message from Celebration Church. 
We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.